Welcome to part two of It Sees You When You're Sleeping, a horror holiday audio drama in six parts. If you haven't heard part one, I would recommend that you start there. You can find it on your favorite podcast app or at the website, itseesyousleeping.com. I'm Phil Rickaby, the writer and performer of It Sees You When You're Sleeping. This is the second part of a trilogy of holiday audio dramas. You can find the first, St. Nick and the Big F*** Up, at stnicknickandthebigfup.com and all the places you usually find podcasts. You can support this audio play in a few ways. You can make a donation through the virtual tip jar. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. You can also support the podcast by sharing it on social media. If you want to post about it on Twitter or Instagram, use the hashtag ISYWYS for It Sees You When You're Sleeping. And you can tag me if you like. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. If you enjoy this audio drama, please rate and review it at Apple Podcasts and make sure you hit the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find updates at the website, itseesyousleeping.com. And stick around for just a minute at the end of the episode for some important credits. Against my better judgment, we were getting the elf doll that Susan so desperately wanted. Eventually, you have to know when you're beaten, and my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, had outsmarted me. I went to the toy store to get the elf. It still seemed like a huge break in the logic of the story that you had to buy the elf at the store to get it to come to your house, but I guess kids don't mind that part. So I go to the toy store to pick up an elf for Susan, and there's a lot of them. They all have different little outfits on, and they all have slightly different faces with differently colored hair. How could there be so many, and how are you supposed to choose? There's a helpful clerk in the aisle, and she sees my confusion and tells me that you're supposed to pick the one that feels right, that feels like it's right for your child, which sounded more esoteric than I thought toy shopping should, but I guessed I should just lean into the experience. So I tried not to think about it too much. I just thought about Susan, and without trying, I felt drawn to one of the elf toys. It had a red outfit, a green scarf, red stripy legs, and a little tuft of reddish hair sticking out from under the hat. I don't know why, but I felt like this was the right elf for Susan. I put the elf on the kitchen table for Susan to find when she came home. I thought this was a better way to do it than just handing her the box. 
I was supposed to play along with this thing, right? If she didn't notice it right away, I planned to say something like, why don't you go to the kitchen and see who came to visit? And then I thought she'd race into the kitchen and squeal in delight and be forever grateful to me. Of course, that's not how it happened. When Susan came home from school, she saw the elf right away and went right to it. She didn't jump for joy or squeal. She just said, I knew you'd come, and picked up the elf and carried it away to her room. And I, and my role in obtaining the elf and even allowing its presence in the house, had been all but forgotten as though the elf just arrived on its own. She brought the elf to the table that night for dinner, carrying it like a baby. I told her that she couldn't carry the elf around, because he had work to do. He had to be free to wander the house and see what she's doing so that he could report back to Santa, and he couldn't do that if she was carrying him around all the time. She reluctantly left him at the dinner table. As she was going, I asked her if she'd chosen a name for him. She said his name was Milo, and went to watch TV. It was up to me to decide what was going to happen next. I put the doll on the bookshelf the first morning. Nothing fancy. I thought I'd get off to a slow start, build up to something a little more elaborate. I heard Susan bound down the stairs, excitement in her pounding feet. She ran into the living room, found nothing, and then out into the hall. She stopped in front of the bookshelf. She stood there for a minute and then she came into the kitchen, her feet no longer bounding in excitement. In fact, she seemed disappointed. Is something wrong? I asked. She shrugged and said that she'd just been expecting something more from Milo. She ate her cornflakes and then went off to school. And that is exactly why I didn't want to do this in the first place. I would have to top myself every day. I didn't want to do all the planning and crafting and setting up every day from now until Christmas, but it was too late. I was committed now. At least I'd set the bar low today so I didn't have to go too big tomorrow. I went to the craft store that afternoon before Susan came home, and I got to work. I started simple the next morning. I sat the doll on the kitchen counter with a cookbook, a bowl, and a wooden spoon. Susan seemed happier with that. For the next week, I came up with more and more elaborate scenes for the doll to be found in. It was a scientist with a lab coat, goggles, and a little paper beaker. Now it was reading a book on the sofa, a little bowl of popcorn beside. Now the doll was a cook once more, setting up on the kitchen table. But there was a mishap with the flour, and there were little elf-sized boot prints in the flour-covered table. Every day I was trying to come up with something new for Milo to do to try to top the previous day. And the more elaborate the hijinks the doll seemed to be engaged in, the happier Susan was. I could see why so many parents fell into this. It felt good to see your child so happy. And she was happy. Susan being happy is very important to me because she's been sad enough. 
And I know that life brings sadness, that one day there will be broken hearts and mean girls and mean boys and difficult life decisions and who knows what else might bring sadness in her life and there's nothing I can do about those. But for right now, I do what I can to make her happy because she's been sad enough in her life and she's only eight years old. I was not happy. In fact, I was feeling a bit forgotten, because the tree had been up for about a week and not once had Susan asked me a question about Santa, and so I hadn't been able to tell her any stories. The tree being up was usually what put the questions into overdrive and the stories flowing, and to be honest, I looked forward to this as much as, or perhaps more, than Susan did. Because the stories were something that were just ours, something we didn't share with anyone else. But this year, Susan had been so focused on the elf that she hadn't asked me any questions about Santa, and so we'd had no story time. I'd become secondary to the elf toy, and that hurt. I was doing my best to get the elf toy into mischief that would delight Susan. I'd scoured the internet for ideas, spent more time at the craft store than I had ever anticipated was possible, and stayed up later than I should getting the elf into position and woke up early to make sure that my craft work had lasted through the night and to put any finishing touches in place before Susan discovered the elf. I made an elf-sized swing and strung it in the doorway of the living room. I made a simple bed out of Lego and put the elf on it under a face cloth for a blanket. I made a little Christmas tree costume out of two pieces of felt that I cut and sewed together and fit over the elf with its legs sticking out. I made a little tent out of construction paper with one of those battery-operated tea lights for a fire pit and had the elf sitting out in front of the tent roasting a tiny marshmallow on a toothpick. Each of these made Susan laugh and call Milo a silly elf, and then she'd have breakfast and go off to school, leaving me to clean up the elf mess for another day. Then one morning, I woke up to do a final check of the elf before Susan came down, and it was not where I had left it. I'd constructed an elaborate find-the-candy game with a bunch of little paper cups where one of the cups had a candy kiss under it with the elf holding a sign that said find the candy. But the elf was not there, and the sign was on the table as though it had been tossed aside. Instead, on the counter was a cereal box, and the elf's legs were sticking out the top. I know that I didn't put the elf there. I wondered if Susan had come down in the night and changed things, but I didn't see any reason she'd do that, and besides, she couldn't reach the cupboard above the counter with the cereal. And while I was trying to figure this out, Susan came into the kitchen, saw the original setup, and the elf's feet sticking out of the cereal box, and then looked at me. I said, 
Guess he got hungry while he was waiting. After breakfast, Susan went off to school, leaving me to try to figure out what happened. It was a mystery. I know I hadn't moved the elf, and Susan certainly couldn't have. But what else could it be? I doubted that there was suddenly some new kind of burglar who broke into people's houses just to rearrange their elf toys. But it was just as unlikely that a felt and plastic toy elf would abandon the scene created for it to effectively dumpster dive into a box of cereal. I laughed it off and tried to tell myself that it was ridiculous. But if that was the case, why were my hands shaking? And that was part two of It Sees You When You're Sleeping. Part three is coming next week. Remember to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and to let me know what you think using the hashtag ISYWYS for It Sees You When You're Sleeping. Some of the music in this episode were excerpts from Up on a Housetop, Jingle Bells, There is Romance, Industrial Music Box, and Bittersweet by Kevin MacLeod, all released under a Creative Commons attribution license. Some sound effects in this episode were from Zapsplat.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.